Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm James. And I'm Faye. So it's been another really interesting week. Lots of things have been happening, James. Loads of conversations. I think everything's really ramping up again this year, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's uh, it's February. Who, where did January go? <laughs> I don't know, but it's gone. We're, we're past it now. We're so over January and we're so into February. But, you know, there's 29 days in February this year. Yeah, leap year, right? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what that particularly means for the podcast, but hey, there we go. Just thought I'd bring it up. Um, So shall I tell you what I've been up to? Yes, please. I started the week talking to Brad Van Leuven from Cladara. Now you'll remember, and I think you did the news read um, on it that day. They've they've sponsored Cambridge United Football Club Stadium in a five-year deal. And I'm like, that's really interesting because they have no physical presence in Cambridge, but they've sponsored the football club. So me being nosy, I went to Brad and said let's have a chat. And they've got a really interesting approach into Cambridge, very community first, very, very people centric. So it was a really good conversation with him. Great to have another type of company interested into Cambridge. And we've definitely got to get him on the podcast at some point in time as well. He's he's super well connected, but in a very different way to probably the Cambridge ecosystem. Interesting. Yeah. So I did that. What I, I was in the Bradfield Centre, saw you on Wednesday, um, had quite a few meetings there, which was great. And then I hopped over the road to St. John's Innovation Centre, saw loads of people over there, actually. I met Steph Martlew. Um, she's got a new role in St. John's Innovation Centre. So I had a good, good conversation with her, met a few clients and prospects, three random encounters. I always love a random encounter, um, which is nice. And I even bumped into today's guest as well. Well, there you go. Yeah, indeed. And I think we both had interesting discussions with Chris Bruce, haven't we, on Cambridge Tech Week? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how much we can divulge right now, but yes, um, exciting things are afoot. Would, what, what would happen if we did? I mean, could we say like it's, it's the 9th to the 13th of September or will we even get in trouble for that? You just did. So let's see. Okay. All right. <laughs> let's see if he listens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my week was kind of similar talking to lots of people lots of meetings um in fact before i get into my week um avid listeners will will, will maybe thank you for getting a bonus 24 hours last week because the episode went out on saturday didn't it instead of sunday (laughs) seriously are you just like dropping me in it there or something that's like that's brutal so Gemma's the guru of getting everything done and she left it in my obviously incapable hands so (laughs) i set it to go live and and obviously did the wrong date so hey yeah like you say you got an extra 24 hours great it's better better to go early than late no no issue there turns out that apple are introducing transcripts to apple podcasts so that actually might save me a job just a couple of weeks ago i think i announced that we were offering transcripts of all of our episodes now so uh if they're going to do it for me, I might not bother. <laughs> do other platforms apply, though? No, not at the moment, but I suspect that once uh, once Apple release it, everyone will follow suit pretty quickly. So yeah, let's see. Keep an eye on that. It's good, but it's good to see podcasting platforms getting new features. You might have heard in my voice, I've got the start of a cold, which is not great, but uh, hopefully I'll get through this. How how is that newsworthy? Well, 
I mean, clearly everyone's going to be like sending me flowers and chocolates. And is it man flu? Do you remember when, like in the seventies, where you used to get those bottles of Lucasade with the cellophane wrapper around them and stuff like that? No. Yeah, is that what you want? I, I dare someone to buy James a bottle of Lucasade. So maybe uh, Lucasade might be listening and will sponsor the podcast from this point onwards. I don't know. Maybe. And then, uh, yeah, in terms of actual work this week, uh, obviously wrapping up on the Trinity of Battlefield Prize. So uh, coverage in uh, Business Weekly and in the Cambridge Independent uh, and various other places, which was great. And lots of really productive meetings. As you said, Chris Bruce, Cambridge Clean Tech, Trinity College. And actually, uh, like you, kind of serendipitous bumping into people. Three people this week approached me about coming on the podcast. So something is working. That's great. That's great. Lovely. So that's our news, including your cold news. So should we move on to the new, move on to the news news? The news news. Yeah, let's do the news news. Yeah. So first up, we have a story from Flex Enable, who developed flexible organic electronics for optics and displays. They have launched optical uh, evaluation kits for augmented reality and virtual reality devices. The technology was showcased in San Francisco last week. Location tech specialist One Spatial has won a 9 million euros multi-year contract with a Belgium customer, which further expands the company's reach across Europe. An interesting announcement this week from PwC Cambridge. They've announced a new digital accelerator, which will be formed of a series of 12-week innovation programs uh, backed by multinational uh, corporations working with technology scale-ups and will be spearheaded by a good friend of both of us, Abby Naha, who's been recruited from Cambridge Wireless to steer the venture for PwC. And Obi was one of the people I bumped into um, whilst I was over at St. John's Innovation Centre as well, yeah. Yeah, we'll get we'll try and get him on and uh, give us the lo- the rundown of everything he's up to. Yeah, it'd be great. Great to do that. In other news, quantum networking company New Quantum has won 2.3 million from the UK government to deliver a world-first modular rack mount and scalable quantum data center prototype. New Quantum is collaborating with Cisco and using the US headquartered technology giant as a prospective end user for the project. So congratulations to the New Quantum team. Ignota Labs, an innovative company at the intersection of AI and pharmaceuticals, has relocated from London and has opened facilities at the Cambridge Science Park. The company, which won the recent Oxbridge AI Challenge, specializes in revitalizing drugs with safety issues using its AI platform, SafePath. And our penultimate story is with Sampler, who we've talked about before. They've raised another $7 million to advance production of its next generation biodegradable plant materials. This takes its haul to date to $17.6 million which is huge. Um, The round demonstrated some significant investor confidence in Sampler. Existing backers, Amadeus Capital Partners, Horizon Ventures, Cambridge Angels, Cambridge Enterprise and Martlet Capital all provided further support. And there's some new investors in the round as well. Um, Cleantech champions, Czech Ventures being one of them. And uh, last but not least, in a very busy week, some good news on the uh, life science building side of things. Breakthrough Properties has secured a £104 million loan and has won planning approvals to kickstart a new 175,000 square feet Cambridge Life Sciences building located at St John's Innovation Park. And the completion is anticipated to be around 2026. 
And I think there's a, a little bit of a joke about Cambridge being Crane Bridge. You know, the cranes are obviously all around Cambridge. And I think that, that we're going to have so many more announcements. I think there are so many things in the pipeline. It is really exciting. So that's today's news. Let's move on then and talk to our guest for today, who is Farbo Shakuri from Phantom Technology. So Farbo, welcome to the show. Please introduce yourself. Yeah, lovely to be here. And my name is Farbo Shakuri. I'm the co-founder and uh, CEO of Phantom Technology Limited. So the story, without going into the entirety of it, basically happens when my co-founder Daniel and I, uh, we, we both studied at Bournemouth University. We did um, an undergrad in games technology. And towards the end of our degree, we came across sort of what we believed was going to be the next sort of evolution of computing. To us, this was very obvious. And, and the reason why this was so obvious to us is because we had seen a trend um, where 3D real-time graphics is becoming adopted in other industries other than games and entertainment. Um, and that trend was was interesting. So for us, it was almost like, okay, clearly the internet's gonna become 3D, but there's gonna be new kinds of interface technologies to access the 3D content. And it was quite obvious that VR and AR were part of the interface technologies that would be crucial for the evolution of, of computing. So we set up Phantom Technology in 2019 with the goal of improving a fundamental problem in augmented reality. And that problem is called contextual awareness. And it's a bit of a very large scope problem because it's not necessarily an a AR problem. It's actually more of an AI problem. So we had this debate, you know, at the beginning thinking, okay, what, what's, what's going to fix the problem first? Is it going to be traditional or classical feature engineering approaches, or is it going to be some kind of AGI that has to happen before there is true contextual awareness? So there's to, just to give you a bit of background what that problem is. So with augmented reality, there's a big difference between that technology and every other technology before it, which is in every sort of computing platform, whether it's desktop, whether it's, you know, laptop or mobile devices, the experience of the applications is contained within that device, right? So it's contained within the screen of that device, it's contained within the boundaries of that device. Whereas with augmented reality, the experience is actually in the real world. So if you think about the canvas being the real world, there's a lot of uncertainty in the real world. And so you have to adapt the experience of whatever your, your you know, application you're running to the uncertainties of the real world. And so you have to understand the context, you have to understand what's around you, you know, what are the objects around you, what is the intent of the user, and incorporate all those things into some kind of system or a framework that can then understand the context and then work to transform the behaviors of the application accordingly and make it adaptive. And that problem was a big problem that has been going on for many years. And we thought that this was, a, this was a time to solve that problem because you need to solve that problem to really have true AR applications. Mm. Probably come back to that uh, later in the conversation in terms of like, you know, how the company and the technology has developed since that, that early thinking. One thing I thought would be really interesting to spend some time on, especially for our listeners that are in early stage companies or thinking about st starting a, a company is how you looked at the, the opportunity. And you, you talked about there in your introduction about seeing 3D modeling technology being adopted outside of gaming. Um, so maybe you could just walk us through that because Obviously, for an early stage technology like AR and VR, we've seen lots of early 
products come to market like Oculus and Google Glasses. And now we've got Apple Vision Pro. So you've kind of seen this opportunity with AR, VR. How did you find what verticals to go for? You know, what was your kind of thought process of going through that? Yeah, we, we actually started the business not quite sure exactly what the product's going to look like, but we just knew what problems to solve. Mm. However, our attempt initially was to create a developer toolkit. You know, I, I think a lot of people make the assumption that the easiest way to build a platform is to create tool and then allow people, you know, developers or creators to create content mm. using your development toolkit. And I think that assumption is wrong in many ways. One of the reasons why that's a bad approach is because we basically thought, you know, developers have money <laughs> and, and, and they don't really have a lot of money. Um, but the second problem is that it's hard to demonstrate the value proposition of your technology or your product when you're waiting for others to create things with it. So it's, it's very hard to say our tool is great, but you need to first create something to see why it's great. So what, when we looked at the other companies who've been successful with developing tools, what we found was actually initially they created a product. And then they released a tool that said, okay, you love this product, now use this tool to create the product just like us. Yeah. Example of that, I think it goes back all the way back to the beginning of game engines, mm. where you had games, you know, that would come out, you know, like for example, Quake yeah. or uh, Unreal Tournament, which Epic then releases the Unreal Engine, which was mm. inspiring in developers to create games just like that. So we found this roadblock, which was, okay, we weren't in a position to really spend a lot of resources to build a game or an application. So we really wanted to figure out how do we still bring a tool to the market, but still somehow demonstrate the utility of it. It was just like the sort of tricky position to be in. So we tried many verticals. We, 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 we knocked on many doors. But, but I think the thing that hit us was we said, okay, clearly the SDK market is crowded and we're seeing the evolution of computing. What's next? Where can we position ourselves to be next so that by the time we have brought something to the market, the market is catching up. Mm. You know, we always knew that the, the wearable market would be the biggest market because that's sort of, you know, going back to AR and VR, that's, that's the killer thing. We knew that that's going to happen. The timing is unpredictable, but we, we know that's, a, that's the next platform shift. And we as a business, our core competency is interface technologies. So we build technologies that allow you to interact with a computer system in really interesting and novel ways, you know, combining different modalities like speech recognition, eye tracking, movement, and so on, and really taking advantage of natural language inputs to all natural inputs in general mm. to interact with a system. So we put our expertise together and really tried to look at the wearable market. And there was a problem in the wearable market, which we thought was an easier approach for us, an approach that would allow us to bring that same technology to the market, but not necessarily wait for developers to create solutions. And that was the hardware. So we went to OEMs and we found that OEMs have a big challenge and it's very common across all of them, which is they don't know how to sell enough units, right? Every OEM wants to sell more units. It's just like a common thing. Yeah. And there is many reasons for that. <laughs> so we thought like, okay, we're basically trying to solve everything at that point. And it was just overwhelming. But the, the, the solution was actually quite simple. We realized, okay, the most important thing with any product is that you need to have utility out of the box. So when you, uh, we tried many smart glasses, we tried many AR headsets. What we found was that majority of them, unless you're a developer or unless you have expertise in that field, when you buy one, you have no idea how to use one. So you turn it on and it's a bit like, 
you know, early 2000s when you had MP3 players and you had to buy an MP3 player, download your own music, port your music over and, you know, spend a day setting it all up. And unless you're a techie, you had no idea really how to set that up and someone would show you. And it just, it feels a lot like that with smart glasses today. And so from our perspective, we're like, why, why is it that the next evolution of computing feels older than the current evolution of computing? Um, so what we wanted to do is create something that would have utility out of the box. And there we basically brought together the same technology and created an AI assistant called Cassie. And we're using the contextual awareness technology that we've created for Cassie to have an understanding of your physical environment and real-time understanding to assist you with no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing. Um, and initial sort of application or vertical of that became the enterprise sort of world. And that, that includes industrial, healthcare, factories, and so on. Um, but the, the common denominator across, across all of those is that the, the businesses now have a clearer return on investment because they're not just they're now buying a glasses that has a utility out of the box versus before where they would have to buy glasses that's three and a half thousand dollars per unit and then invest another 50 to 100,000 just to build a bespoke application for them to use it. So like imagine you bought a laptop today and then I said to you, okay, now good luck, you know, spend another 100,000 to build yourself an application to use it on your own laptop. That's the kind of market that we're talking about when it comes to smart glasses. Okay, I want to come back to Cassie in a minute. Uh, you know, I think everything that you've just explained to us there is one of those instances that happened to so many startups, which is what market do you go for? What is it that you're actually producing? And the inevitable pivot that you think you're going in one direction, but actually you need to go in a different direction. So coming back to Cassie in a minute, I want, I want to hear from you about what that journey felt like from, from when you started to where you are now. And then we can pick up on Cassie afterwards. Got it. We did explore many different approaches and the kind of markets, but I think you're right when you say that most startups try and figure out what market to go to and they spend an awful amount of time experimenting and, and, and doing. So it's for us, it's, it's simply the journey f was that we took the technology and tried to bring it as a development toolkit. And we felt that, you know, it was very hard to get developers to adopt technology where they have to pay for it. Unless you're talking about something very new or there's a very a small niche you can target. Mm. Generally speaking, development toolkits are by the majority of developers on the market seen as a software that they could just pick up and use mm. and not pay much on it, or at least pay royalties and not really anything upfront. Mm. So that was tr tricky for us. And we, it was a market problem for us, but we were always obsessed about AR smart glasses. And so the team was always focused. We knew that was going to be the, the, the eventual thing. So it was never really a surprise for us to sort of look and say, okay, what's next? We always had that at the back of our minds. We just wasn't sure about the timing. So we spent about two and a half years doing R&D and going to developers, trying to understand what they want from this tech. Well, I um, think that's the key thing, right? Because you weren't just locked away in the lab building tech you know as you i think in your words you said you were knocking on doors you were going to have conversations with developers oems you know sounds like there's a lot of effort put into the kind of business development side of things you were doing a lot of competitive analysis by buying all the products and trying them and figuring out where the you know the, the limitations were in the user experience and those kinds of things so i think that's like interesting for people that might be listening thinking about you know how do you discover your yeah. market it sounds like you're putting just as much effort into the research, the market research, not the 
you know, the technology R&D research um, and the business development side of things as you were in the technology. Absolutely. I, I always think that the, the most important thing is when you, for our, from our perspective anyway, I think we spent a lot of time trying to understand problems that we could solve, but not actually taking any advice for what solutions to offer. Mm. And I've heard this many times as well, but it's, it's better to, like customers know their problem. Like they know exactly what their problems are, especially when we talk to OEMs, they were saying to us that, you know, glasses, that there is not a lot of um, reasons to buy one. There's, it's very hard to sell it because it's, there's a lot of friction in the market. It's the, the price is too high. And we, we took all those problems and we're like, that's correct. But whenever they offer us a solution, we said, no, 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 that's our job. <laughs> in fact, try and avoid listening to the solutions. Always listen to the problem. Because kind of like going back to Henry Ford's sort of quote, which is, um, if I had asked what people wanted, they would have just asked for faster horses. Clearly they knew what the problem was. Horses were too slow. They would get tired very often, but they didn't have the creativity to come up with a solution. So startups, I believe, just generally speaking, they the whole purpose of a startup is to be a creative problem solver. Mm. But you have to understand the problem that you're solving deeply. And that's where you take as much information as you can from the market. Uh, but don't listen to solutions. Mm. Come up with the solution yourself. Mm. So we did do a lot of knocking and we found actually that the problems that were... Weirdly enough, it was hard to tell a developer like, oh, context awareness is an important problem because developers didn't quite see it. So many of them were sort of trying to learn how to create AR applications and they weren't even used to them to, to the medium, let alone be aware of the problems. And I see that often in the, in the, especially in this industry where startups are solving problems that people aren't even aware of, you know, them being problems. And so they're waiting for the problem to be known before what they're offering is viable to the market. So for us, when we went to the OEMs, we actually found OEMs, clearly they felt the same problems as us. They actually said the same things as we, we, or, we we'd already um, observed. Mm. Whereas developers didn't quite know that yet. Developers just want to create and they'll create for whatever platform is available for them. Uh, but whereas OEMs were saying, look, we can't sell enough units. There's, this is a tough market. Like for example, last year, there was only 400,000 units sold globally for smart glasses. It's not a lot of, no, it's nothing. Mm. And, and you have to ask yourself why? It's because they're useless. There's nothing you can do with them. And so we were like, why, why do we actually just make these things useful and do something that you can't do in any other platform? Yeah. So that, that then kind of signaled your pivot to actually then looking at the operating system for these kind of devices and like controlling the user experience. If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. We also offer a range of high-quality meeting spaces for hire and for tech event organisers, our auditorium, Lakeside Pavilion and Atrium spaces are perfect to bring your communities together for in-person and hybrid events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919600. So talk to us then about Cassie and like, you know, how you've taken this leap into OS and, and, you know, AI driven assistance. Yeah. Pivot really was happening slowly. It wasn't like a pivot that would happen overnight. The pivot took a whole year. 
where we went, okay, let's learn and learn and learn and let's observe and, you know, talk to as many customers as we can. The main transition here is that there is a growing market of what we call AI-powered wearable devices. Mm. And wearable devices already are, are a large market, but the reason why we see this as an emerging market within that market, you know, being AI-powered is because the advent of generative AI has given sort of a new life to wearable devices. And we saw that as the key sort of, I would say, the key variable to unlocking the potential of smart glasses. Because what is the problem with smart glasses? There's not much you can do with them. What is the solution that generative AI provides? Provides a lot of content for free, basically, right? Close to free anyway. The, the problem that we were seeing was that OEMs were saying, oh, we'll wait for the developers to create apps for our platform. Mm. And we're saying, okay, that's great, but how do you create something in, in the beginning to get developers to buy your platform? And they didn't have a good answer for that. But when we said, what if there was an aspect of generative AI where you don't need to wait for hundreds of applications to exist on your platform before customers can buy it, but there is at least one solution that offers many kinds of like assistance and solutions in, ver in various verticals out of the box. And generative AI provides that solution. So, so what would be a good example of that then? If, I think you're, I'm right in saying you're thinking about kind of more industrial applications of these wearables. So what would be a good example of a, you know, a wearable in an industrial context? How would, you know, generative AI what sort of use case would that deliver? A simple example is Cassie can see what you see, can hear what you hear, and is aware of your physical space around you. Uh -huh. So for example, on a let's say you've got an assembly line, it can see the bill of materials in front of you and you can just say, hey Cassie, help me build this product. And Cassie, because it's already observed the surroundings, it will tell you where is the nearest components that you need to fetch to bring it back together, put it, put it together and show you a step-by-step -step instruction. Right. And if you get stuck, you can ask, you know, where does this go? Or, what, or did I make, miss up the order? Because you've got a natural language interface, it can actually understand the intent behind that question, deconstruct that question, and, and, and link the aspects of that question to the physicality. So when I say this, it is aware of what I mean by this because of where I'm looking when I'm saying that. Yeah, okay. And, and so it's combining different modalities to give you assistance that is in real time. And another example that's less industrial, but I think easy for everyone to sort of understand, and, and we do try this, it's quite fun, is you can open the fridge and say, hey Cassie, uh, what can I cook with these ingredients today? And Cassie will take some time and go, okay, well, here's some ideas. And it's just simply like looking at what's available and yeah. it's, it's coming up with the ideas of what, you know, what kind of dishes are out there and, and trying to put something together. Sometimes it's quite creative. Sometimes it's giving you dishes that are very well known. Uh, but the key here is it's combining vision, real-time perception in general, 3D understanding with uh, generative AI. And, and we believe that's kind of like the most important ingredient for smart glasses because everyone sort of thinks about smart glasses and the instincts they have is it needs to be very 3D and visual. We believe it's it's not about visual. It's actually about uh, contextualization. Yeah. And more importantly, it needs, to, it needs to augment the mind, not necessarily just a vision. It's, it needs to augment the mind because that's, that's the medium. And, and, you know, you're focusing on the operating system rather than the hardware. So the compute power that's necessary and, you know, I guess that's, is it edge-based cloud compute or is it actually on the device? It, it's hybrid. Okay. It's hybrid, yeah. But you kind of don't concern yourself with that? Is that accurate? Because you're more focused on the operating system rather than the hardware? So yeah. do you just kind of have certain specs that the OS will need to run against? Yeah, and, and to be honest, like when, when you look at the existing smart glasses in the market, overwhelming majority of them run Android. Yeah. Um, just like basic Android, open source Android. And the great thing about smart glasses is they've basically got the guts of a smartphone. 
So it's not like an alien hardware. The only thing really alien about it is the design and the, and the display. Yeah. Um, everything else is, we're familiar with that because it's essentially a smartphone. Um, but there are so many challenges in the hardware side and actually the software has to complement those challenges or has, at least has to address or, or work around those challenges. So for example, there is a lot of limitations of, of power consumption because you have a small device, you have a limited battery capacity on those devices. Um, and so you can maybe get two or three hours best from these devices, uh, you know, lightweight smart glasses. So the operating system not only does it need to be efficient, but it needs to power uh, and manage the power consumption of different sort of protocols. So for example, Cassie is running in the background of the operating system. And what's, what it's doing is it's contextualizing your environment. But we've developed it in a way where it has states. So for example, when you're sitting still, you're not really doing much. The system is basically asleep. And you just, it's just, it's just a wearable device. But when you're walking around, moving around, there is, it, it is on like, sort of like standby. And then there's a mode where it's, hi it's hyper. And that's when you're querying the system. So when you're actually asking for a question, the system has to look at the environment and actually understand the environment. Look at the, you know, last few things that's happened around you, what we call the context frame. So it's framing the data that's come through for the last few minutes. And then it's taking that query and then it's making sense of that query and responding to you. But to do that, you have to go real low level and the operating system needs to manage that really well. Because if you just build an app that did that, first of all, that's going to burn the battery in like half an hour. Mm. But, but secondly, and more importantly, uh, what we're trying to do is create a new interface technology for this sort of like smart glasses. But we, we don't believe the future of smart glasses is going to be the same as like smartphones where you have apps and then you just pick an app, like an icon. And we see that as a mistake again <laughs> with current products where they don't really have a good solution for what the interface should look like. So they kind of bring over existing ideas from smartphones or tablets. And so you turn on the smart glasses today and it's like usually you see these just like icons in a tray and you think to yourself, first of all, how do I select this? Yeah. <laughs> I got to figure out where the buttons are. And then secondly, why would I want to select this like that? And so... You know, this system basically rethinks the way an operating system as an interface should look like and, and, and works backwards and yeah. says, you know, everything should be seamless. Everything should be ambient. You shouldn't really see anything unless you need to see it. It's kind of always on and then you just yeah. trigger an interaction. Yeah, that makes sense. So you found yourself back in Cambridge in 2022, but I believe you were here earlier than that. So I, I, I believe that you had a work placement at PlayFusion. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I started my engineering doctorates and um, it, which means you get three years of like um, three years of engineering, you know, industrial placement. Um, and I was introduced to um, uh, the, the great, it's an incredible team there in PlayFusion. And I really fell in love with what, with what they were doing because they were working on building an engine for AR applications. And my research at the time was improving contextual awareness for AR. So I thought, okay, this is a perfect playground <laughs> for me to go in and, and have contact with the end customer, understand their problems, but also build some kind of real solution that actually addresses those problems. Not, I always felt isolated doing a PhD in a, in a lab. I never liked the idea of doing it in a lab. I always liked the idea of being at the front lines and, and sort of working with a product that's actually in people's hands. So that was a great, great opportunity. And the team were incredible. They're ex-Jagex. And so I learned a lot. Some of them were my, like my childhood heroes because I played RuneScape. So I was like, okay, this is amazing. I'm learning a lot. I learned a lot from them. And slowly I kind of worked away from research engineering and more close to sort of uh, closer to sales 
and like technical sales. And that's when I fell in love with the idea of taking the ideas that I've had and thinking, can, can I just do something with this myself? Because first of all, the PhD is long and I don't have that patience. <laughs> and secondly, I felt that the problems I was trying to solve wouldn't be solve, would, wouldn't be solvable in a PhD anyway. So I'd make great contributions, but I really wanted to actually solve them. And usually the PhD was, is not long enough for truly solving those problems in a way that scales and has impact. So my co-founder, Dan, so we worked before together. Uh, we worked on a game called Timebreaker. It was a mobile game and we released it on the Android and iOS uh, app stores. And we got, I think, like nearly 100,000 downloads. And, you know, it, we did it with nothing, no budget. So we felt quite good about that, I think, project. <laughs> and so when we came back and we, we, when I was uh, leaving PlayFusion and he was um, leaving his old workplace, we thought, okay, there's definitely something here and we can work together again. But this time it's spatial computing. Yeah. So it's yeah. a good fit. Yeah. And then you found yourself back in Cambridge. Yeah. And, and so, so what was your draw? You know, was it, was it that experience that you had there being close to R&D? What, what brought you back here? After the PlayFusion placement, I, were, I, I moved back to Bournemouth with Daniel. We spent some, basically two years there, really working part-time. You know, I was doing like part-time lecturing at university and, and just trying to sort of gather people and build prototypes. And then, you know, this was during the beginning of COVID as well. So we, we spent a lot of time kind of just building and like in cave mode, you know, <laughs> just build, build, build. Um, and, and the team we put together from, a lot of them actually were from Bournemouth initially. So after COVID and after lockdown, we thought, okay, we we want to position ourselves in a place where we feel that we're we're in a good ecosystem and we even talked about going to Silicon Valley at one point. Um, but we thought, okay, for now, let's let's go Cambridge because Cambridge has, to us, it still is the Silicon Valley of UK. Of, of UK. Mm. And my own experience being being at Cambridge, I did fall, fall in love a little bit with Cambridge. So it's hard to ignore that. Great. Nice. So we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, your journey. We talked about the technology and the pivot. So where's phantom right now you know in terms of i guess there's different things we could talk about here but you know give give listeners a sense of where you are now with the technology you know have you started to find customers funding size of the team you know give us give us a flavor of where the company is right now we're actually quite a small team still but we are growing so we're a team of six mm -hmm. mostly engineering really but we're a team of six and we just announced actually this is post AWE, which was in EU, um, Austria, we just announced a partnership with uh, DigiLens. And DigiLens is a uh, Silicon Valley-based AR platform company. And they've been building waveguides and display technologies for augmented reality glasses and heads-up displays for maybe 12, 13 years at least. But a year ago, we found that they're working on an AR device. And we, we, we met with the team. We really liked the team. We started working with them. And we just announced a partnership. So we early next year, the DigiLens Argo, which is their AR glasses, will come out and it will feature Cassie out of the box. Okay. So our software is in all those devices. And and, and it's, it's a bit like Amazon Alexa or a Siri, but mm. again, difference here is initially it's, it's a, it, it has vision and it can assist you with spatial and contextual queries. Over time, we're working on the uh, operating system and we've we've got some initial, let's just say, uh, discussions about that. Actually, we've got one today. So it, a lot is happening very quickly. Mm. 
So we fundraised uh, last year. We raised a pre-seed round uh, led by SFC Capital. And then we, we launched another smaller, another round that's, that's interim round. So it's really us trying to raise angel funding until we, we, we felt that we were ready in terms of commercial and uh, go to market. Yeah. And we reached that point now. So we're now uh, closing that round and opening the seed round. And the seed round is our VC round, the first VC round, really, looking to raise about 3 million, 3.2 million pounds. And really for that, that is to deliver on the current and, and upcoming licensing deals, yeah. which is um, uh, licensing Cassie and the subsequent technologies that, that power Cassie mm. to the OEMs. It sounds really exciting. You know, you've got the big relationship with DigiLens, you're approaching your VC round. Is there anything else that you're looking out for in the next year or so? Any any key markers you're going to aim for? I, I wish I could give you more, more, but we, we haven't announced the other partnerships. So there's a couple of other partnerships that we, we'll be announcing. And just we just can't wait for that. Um, really, our goal is to bring our system software, which includes the operating system and Cassie, to as many wearable devices as possible. Mm. And and the exciting part that I, I wish I could share more about is, is let's just say it, there are other devices other than smart glasses that are kind of coming to market that are mm. very unique. Yeah. Um, I can give you an example. So Humane is a yeah. is a good example of that, I right? I mention that. I yeah. got a lot of coverage a couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah, yeah. Humane AI Pin is one of those products that We've been following them for a very long time. So we, we knew sort of like what they were working on, but I think that they've got a lot of courage and I, I do respect the way they're pushing such a different idea into the market. But I, I do believe that that's one of the first of many kinds of products that will come sort of, you know, these kinds of new ideas about how, what is a wearable device? What is a mobile computer? What, what, is, what should it do for you? And what we do see as a common denominator is that all of them will be AI centric. All the new operating systems mm. of the wearable devices of the future will be AI-centric. And does that have a proprietary OS on it? Because I, I didn't see what the actually OS was in the coverage. Yeah, it's called yeah. Cosmos. It's, yeah, a, okay. it's a proprietary OS, yeah. 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 But there, there are a lot of OEMs that um, are waiting for other companies to build them OS. Yeah, and that's quite common, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great story, right? And uh, we'll, we'll track with eagerness and uh, maybe get you back on next year and see how things are going. Let's do it. Yeah, looking forward to it. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show.